0: Lovecraft was not an author Atticus would have expected to like. He wrote horror stories, which were more George's thing, Atticus preferring adventures with happy or at least hopeful endings. But one day, on a whim, he decided to give Lovecraft a try, choosing at random a lengthy tale called At the Mountains of Madness. The story concerned a scientific fossil hunting expedition to Antarctica while scouting for new dig sites the scientists discovered a mountain range with peaks higher than everest in a plateau in the mountains lay a city built millions of years ago by a race of aliens called the elder things or the old ones who came to earth from space during the Precambrian era although the old ones had abandoned the city long ago their former slaves protoplasmic monsters called Shogoths, still roam the tunnels beneath the ruins she Goths? Atticus' father said when Atticus made the mistake of telling him about this. Shogoths, Atticus corrected him. Uh huh. And the master race, the Elder Clansmen? Elder Things, Old Ones. They're fair skinned, I bet. And these She Goths, they're dark? The Elder Things are barrel shaped. They have wings. But they're white, right? They're gray. Pale gray? Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at SyncBook and at Sync42. It's Monday, May 9th, 2016, and today we are taking a dangerous drive through the horrors and terrors of Lovecraft Country. And we'll do so with author Matt Ruff. Matthew Theron Ruff is the author of six novels, including such works as his breakout Fool on the Hill, 2007's Bad Monkeys, and The Mirage from 2012. This year brought forth Lovecraft Country, a novel of Jim Crow America that melds historical fiction, pulp noir, and Lovecraftian horror and fantasy, published by HarperCollins. It's Chicago, 1954, and when his father goes missing, 22-year-old Army veteran Atticus Turner embarks upon a road trip to New England to find him, accompanied by his Uncle George, publisher of The Safe Negro Travel Guide, and his childhood friend Letitia. On their journey to the manor of Samuel Braithwaite, heir to the estate that owned one of Atticus's ancestors, they encounter both the mundane terrors of white America and malevolent spirits that seem straight out of the weird tales George devours. Atticus discovers his father in chains, held prisoner by a secret cabal, the Order of the Ancient Dawn, led by Braithwaite and his son Caleb, which is gathered to perform a ritual that shockingly centers on Atticus. And his one hope of salvation may be the seed of his and the whole Turner's clan's destruction. It's a chimerical blend of magic, power, hope, and freedom that stretches across time, touching diverse members of two black families. Lovecraft Country is a devastating kaleidoscope portrait of racism, the terrifying specter that still haunts us today. For more information about this book and others of his works, visit Matt's website bymattruff.com. It's quite an honor to be hosting him today. Welcome, Matt. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. You bet. Nice
0: intro, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Let's just start with your middle name. I had no idea until uh, I looked at your your Wikipedia page, but some of our audience members might make the leap to Crowley with that nickname. Have you ever gotten that? (laughs)
1: No, because as as you, as you say, most people don't even know it. I, I it, it was one of those things. My mother liked the name for some reason, but um, uh, my dad won the coin toss, so Matthew went first, and Theron became my second name, and I've I've almost never used it. Um, and of course, my 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 publishing name is Matt Ruff, so that's even shorter. Um, no, I, I I I probably would have thought of that myself if I dwelt on it, but yeah, it's it's definitely not something my mother would have. <laughs> would have gone for
0: but it's interesting that that's kind of the the realm that a lot of your fiction inhabits
1: I mean certainly yeah I'm I'm I like I like odd stories I like yes I like like knowing things like yes that that Theron and Therion would be something that would link up to Crowley those making those sort of interesting little connections is definitely something that that describes my creative process and how i like to think but um yeah so it's an interesting yeah it is an interesting coincidence
0: mm-hmm. okay but in in that same vein this past uh early year it was fun because the x-files brought out a new season i'm wondering if you if you watched it and what you thought of it
1: I did watch it. And I, yeah, I was a huge, a huge X Files fan, and as as you as you probably know, the one of the inspirations for Lovecraft Country was a desire to do a story kind of like the X Files but different. Um, and I, I guess the the new season was kind of a disappointment to me. I felt like it it had lost a lot of the charm that that made the story work. The initial series work for me. It may just be it's past its time, you know. Um, so but of course if they if they decide to keep going with it, I will probably continue to watch because it's just it, the, the, the show was such a big thing to me and my wife back when it first aired.
0: But it was such a different world back then too. That's one of the things that I realized that so here was something that we we moved beyond the idea of broadcast television where you have to you're tied to a time and location where now <laughs> it's just everything's on demand. but then it was kind of fun because, oh, we have to, to we have to tune in at this moment to watch the latest X Files, and so it was like nostalgic to gather around the TV as a group. Did that
1: was certainly, yeah. I mean, and I, I'm, I, again, it was. It, it certainly could have worked, but I just felt like the part of what made the series so wonderful was that relationship between Mulder and Scully, and that that just didn't seem the same this time. And uh. um, I, I don't know, and and also just the brand of conspiracy that worked so well in the 90s they don't know that it's still as current today yeah
0: well it seems like maybe we're more sophisticated or less i i don't know it's just that the internet has added a whole new layer of conspiracy
1: i mean i'm already forgetting large portions of the plot of the new episodes but that was one thing i felt too is that they were trying a little too hard to connect to the internet era in the way that that had changed things and and this was a problem too. I don't know if you ever saw the the original *Salem's Lot* TV series way back in the day, but then they they remade it more recently. In, and part of the problem was that the the *Salem's Lot* story about vampires basically taking over and, and wiping out this small town in Maine, that only works in a in an era when there are no where there is no internet. Because today, if Vampires started eating everybody in a small town people would get on Twitter and tweet about it right whereas back when there were just you know telephones it was possible for a small town to blow up and disappear and nobody notice until months later so uh, yeah I, I think the 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 way the internet has changed things certainly changes storytelling but but part of it too and it, this is a problem with any long-running series that depends on conspiracies and and twists and turns unless you have a very strong plan to begin with i think you inevitably start accruing contradictions and plot issues to a point where at some point it just becomes impossible for the story to make sense to anyone who's still trying to make sense of it and i felt that the Exiles probably hit that around the fourth or fifth season where there were just one too many reversals and i was just like okay there's just no way that all of this can possibly add up. It's like I don't need to know what the truth is, but I need to be able to believe that there really is a consistent explanation for everything. And that was another problem I thought with the new series was that they they sort of forgot a lot of what they had had done back when, so it it at this point to still be arguing about whether aliens exist or whether it, or what really happened? It just—it just seemed rather odd. Like we were—we we're just, you know, we're just throwing in these these twists and turns just to have something to say. And that was—it—it it, it may have just been one too many trips back to the well. So. <laughs> Sorry. I, obviously, I think about this stuff a lot because I—I I do like—I like mystery. I like twists and turns. But I also like to have a story where you feel like, even if I, you know, I don't have to know what the truth is, but I have to believe that there really is. There is a plausible explanation that would make all of this make sense and you can keep it from me but you can't let me believe that you're just throwing weird crap at me and and you know hoping I won't notice that it doesn't make any sense.
0: That's great. And and so before as I was reading Lovecraft Country, I didn't know that it potentially began its existence as of a TV pitch. Yeah. And so I really thought, "Oh, this might work really well." On a screen of some kind, and I I really like that idea because there was kind of a a visual element to the storytelling. I wonder if when you wrote it, did you write it with that in mind, or did it it just was that a kernel at the beginning, and it just kind of
1: in the in the beginning. I mean, yeah, I, I had I had pitched this as a sort of a TV idea, and the idea was it was the X Files if Mulder and Scully were black travel writers or travel researchers living back in the 1950s, and so. Um, and the problem was how to take that idea, which just in, in 2007 I could not I could not get anybody in TV interested, and and see how make it work as a novel. And part of the problem was that, that part of what I wanted to do was the idea of taking sort of classic horror tropes and then retelling them, but with how does this story change if the protagonist is a, a black man or woman living in the the era of legalized segregation? So that you're combining the sort of the horror of The Jim Crow era, with with the more supernatural horror. So in in X Files terms, it was like I wanted it had to be a novel, so there had to be an overarching theme. But I also wanted to somehow preserve that sort of monster of the week sensibility. Mm -hmm. What I ended up doing is that basically each chapter of the novel focuses on a different protagonist, a different character in Atticus's extended family, and having a, a sort of a mini adventure that that in some way echoes one of these stories of like his friend Letitia gets money and decides to buy a house and gets an incredibly good deal on it because it's haunted and it's a, it's a she's buying a haunted house in a white neighborhood so she's got to deal both with neighbors who want to burn her out and this white ghost who doesn't want her there either and um,
0: but the white ghost has it's not just that you know it's his home but it it's funny I mean it's it's still racist he's a racist ghost
1: sure sure and so it was, yeah, so each each individual chapter is is sort of like seems like a separate adventure, and at first you, and my my goal was to make the individual chapters engaging enough that even if you don't see immediately how this fits into the larger arc story, you'll be enticed and want to see where it goes, and then, as you go along, you' realize, oh, so this connects up to this story this way, and this connects up to this story, and then the the larger arc story being about. Atticus being descended on his mother 's side from this sort of infamous seventeenth century white sorcerer from New England, and um, the current generation of white sorcerers from New England sort of wanting to make use of him and their their grand plot and that sort of being the the generating force between a lot of, of of a lot of the other weird stuff that happens in the novel so so yeah that was the that was the trick in turning into a novel was figuring out how to take this this idea of a uh, uh, sort of a yeah a multiple episode story and and making it feel like a coherent whole in a novel but once i once i figured that out i i was really glad because i i, I thought it was a great idea for a story and yeah and in the back of my head it's always been that this the novel would also be a proof of concept for really this is what i had in mind this is what it could be like on television but you could do even more with it with more more time and room to breathe so um uh, so I never, yeah, I never quite gave up on that, but but mainly I just wanted to get my version of the story out there, just because I thought it would be a really cool tale. Um,
0: well, so that's what's, I mean, that's why I responded to it because, well, the, when I'm reading it, I thought well, this would translate nicely to TV, and then I thought, well, I've never seen anything like this on TV, and then this is part of
1: the problem I think in trying to get it made.
0: Well, because. There would be this novelty of, oh, look, it's an all-black cast, yeah. except for they're, they're existing in reality. And so they're, of course, but for the most part, it's not the point of view of a story that we have in our culture these days. It's not something that's necessarily a commodity that... Uh, <laughs> I mean I could see how interesting it would be but I could also see how there would be reluctance to say oh yeah this is a good idea but then what's great about it the thing that I really liked is that at some point none of that matters the story transcends you know the the characters it becomes about it well you, you know what I'm trying to say here that the the sure. I love the cuz there's this also this Indiana Jones quality to it and so, yeah,
1: I mean, there are a couple of challenges i think in 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 getting people interested. One is that, yes, the idea of an, an almost entirely black cast, all the viewpoint all the points of view all the point of view characters are african American the story you know trusts you to be able to empathize with them without needing sort of Atticus to have like a white friend that you can glom onto. Um, And then the the other challenge, of course, is when you tell people it's a story about racism and and sort of the struggle against white supremacy, that that can sound like a real downer, but it's actually a very hopeful and exciting and funny story, at least I hope it is. That was the plan, because it's about, you know, these characters are beset by some real challenges, and that's part of what makes the drama so interesting, is that they've got all the problems that a person would going up against a, a ghost or, a you know, uh, creature from Beyond, and they they're also they've got to deal with all the the difficulty of being black in the 1950s. But um, but these people are smart survivors, and they're lucky, and they they tend to find a way to turn things to their advantage. So it's it's a really I hope a really uh, uplifting story, rather than than you know the sort of bleak thing that I think a lot of people may imagine at first when they hear Oh Jim Crow, yeah, I want to spend time with that. But again, that's a difficulty in in pitching it to other people as for television is that, that there is always that fear is like, well, is this going to be a real downer? Is anybody going to want to tune into this? And I, I think the answer could be yes. So, um,
0: I definitely think I yes. Seem to have a
1: knack, I seem to have a knack for that in my fiction generally of taking premises that could be really grim, but because I've sort of got a basic optimism, I, I think I, I'm able to write them in a way that they're they're cheerier and and happier than you might expect without being dishonest about the reality of the challenges which is the other thing you don't want to do
0: well I'm curious when you named Atticus in the scheme of things <laughs> because it, I'm just saying because that name had so much power and then all of a sudden now I think it was last summer when Go Set a Watchman came out all of a sudden the name is almost sullied
1: yeah that was that was a weird thing I I don't actually remember the, the the conscious decision process of naming him Atticus. I mean, obviously, I must have in the back of my mind when I when I, I, I first came up with the name when I was writing up this sort of TV series treatment. So I probably was coming up with character names rather quickly, and I'm sure that in the back of my mind I made a connection to to uh, yeah to to *Kill a Mockingbird*, but um, I, I probably didn't stop to consider the the full ramica- ramifications of it. So. Yes, when, when Ghost at a watchman came out and the name of Atticus was briefly in the news and everybody was all upset last last summer, there was a party who was like, Oh boy, well I didn't intend that association, but um but I I think I think it's just such a cool name, I don't really care.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And then I mean, so that's the interesting thing because fiction is bigger than the author at times, and so <laughs> you know who who's to say i mean the reputation of atticus we we don't know what it will really become in the future anyway because there's so much controversy surrounding that the the follow-up anyway so it's just an interesting little anecdote i think
1: I, I mean, I haven't read the new novel yet, and I'm kind of fascinated because i it does it actually sounds rather interesting, but I, I know a lot of people are really upset about it but i i I actually kind of it's it'll be interesting to contrast the two the two takes on the character I think um, yeah, I think that the the other thing you have to be wary of though when you're apt to make connections is it and also because I tend to be a little obsessive it it's easy to overstate the emphasis of certain coincidences and things like that, so yeah, my initial my initial reaction when that story broke was like, oh, geez, I I don't want this this thing. But, but the the public consciousness—I mean, public attention spans are so short. I think people have, have almost forgotten about it now. So I don't know that even even this soon after that people will necessarily be thinking about last summer when they when they read Atticus Turner. So.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so I recently heard Jacqueline Woodson do a reading. And one of the questions was, how can you write such multicultural, diverse characters? How can you, you know? And she said, well, I grew up with a lot, my family, and this and that, and and so I'm wondering if you've gotten a, a similar question, and and how, in this day and age, it could actually be very pointed.
1: Um. Well, I mean, in terms of how it came about, I yeah, I kind of come from a multicultural background too. My. Um, my parents were both white, but my dad was uh, from uh, the Midwest. He's born in Michigan, grew up there and in, in Illinois. And um, my mom was a missionary's daughter. She was born in uh, southern Brazil, grew up in Argentina during during the Peron administration, and only emigrated to the U.S. in, in her 20s. And um, so our house was sort of Ellis Island for emigrating South American relatives. And... In addition to the sort of the multicultural split in the household, we also had uh, religious division. My parents were both Lutheran, but my grandmother, who lived with us, and one of my uncles were, were Mormons. So it's like I grew up in this multicultural theological debate society. And I, I learned early on the value of being able to sort of deal with people with very different worldviews who you, you couldn't just kill. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like
1: you, you know you, you have these you, you get into these really heated arguments about who's going to go to hell when they die and so forth but then the next day you've got to sit down to breakfast and so there's no easy out of, of uh, you know you could get very angry but you, you, you still got to deal with people and so for me I mean uh, the whole idea of embracing diversity and understanding different people that's got very strong practical value because I live in a world where there's a lot of folks who don't see eye-to-eye to me and the world will always be that way. I think a mistake that a lot of people make when they when they talk about diversity is they they envision some sort of progressive future where certain polarizing differences of opinion will vanish as more people become more enlightened. And I think just that the, the nature of the polarizing divisions will change. there will be different ones maybe. So maybe there will be a time when skin color won't matter as much as it does today, but there will be something else. And so this this value of being able to see uh, through other eyes and, and you know, not just condemn anybody who doesn't see the way you do as, as either stupid or crazy will always have value in and of itself. So I find that kind of stuff interesting. And in fiction, I just like being able to write from, sort of take the question, okay, here's somebody who, who sees the world differently than I do. And, and rather than just reject out of hand this, this crazy way of thinking, like what would it like to be them? What would it be like to grow up with somebody who maybe, te- or or what would it be like to somebody whose temperament is very similar to mine, but whose life experiences and the constraints and challenges they face are very different than mine. Which is more with Lovecraft Country, it was just the the entry point was finding out about this safe Negro travel guide. Um, the the real life The real life thing was the the book. There's this thing called the Green Book. It was a a guide published between 1936 and 1966 that would list um, Restaurants and hotels and other accommodations across the the states that would accept African American customers, and uh, this was invaluable at a time when if you were black you couldn't just even in the north and west you couldn't just roll up to a motel and assume they'd take you in. Um, and I had never, I you know, I, I had no idea that such a thing existed. But when I found out about it, I was just it it spoke of this whole sort of hidden infrastructure for dealing with and, and navigating life in a, in a country of white supremacy and segregation. And, and I was fascinated by that. So that was part of what drew me to telling this sort of horror story about uh, African Americans struggling in the 1950s, because it, it it's a very different way to live. And you know, Atticus is a, he's a, he's a science fiction fan. He's a nerd. He's got, in a lot of ways, he and I would see eye to eye on stuff, but he's just, he's just dealing, he's even from the same part of the country as my father's people, you know, but because he's black, his life experience is just phenomenally different in some other ways. And so I was just fascinated by the challenge of writing about that and trying to get it not necessarily right, but just plausible, where you would you would, you know, feel like you were, you were experiencing the life of a real person. So, and yes, there is today this challenge of, uh, there are a lot of folks, because the, the the history of white representation of African-Americans in fiction is, is rather dismal, and particularly in some particular cases, I knew, I knew there were people who were going to be skeptical or, you know, maybe even uninterested, but the challenge of that actually excites me rather than scares me and so and i it's just it's i guess the way i put it is it's it's good to be a little nervous when you're writing because it keeps you it keeps you from getting lazy and i think it's when you get lazy and start falling back on stereotypes that the fiction really becomes bad and offensive but also just uninteresting so as long as you can steer clear of that it's it's okay if people are a little skeptical up front i i like to believe that I've got good enough chops that I can draw them in in the end.
0: And then the fun thing with with this, um, the so even though it's, it's science fiction and the occult and all that is definitely a, um, looked down upon from a literary standpoint at times. You know, the genre fiction is what I'm trying to Cer- say.
1: Certainly, the, yeah. I mean, I think that sort of snobbishness has kind of had its day, though. I mean, with, well, with, you know, but you are yeah.
0: able to take the that literary quality of, you know, so a ghost story, ghosts aren't real, but then the horrors in your story are are very, very real. And mm-hmm. so to have that, that's the kind of the kind of metaphor that you know critics probably would drool over a little bit. I, I imagine.
1: Well, the, even you know, genre is another case of where where a sort of multicultural attitude kind of comes into it. I I just never felt it, about keeping sort of real realist literary drama separate from genre elements. I like mixing and matching and and using whatever whatever helps me tell the story I really want to tell. And I, I mean, there's a there's a tonal issue where. Certain elements, if you're going to combine them, they can get tricky. And and uh, but uh, generally, it's it's just a question of having a good a good sense of what what works together and what doesn't. And again, I'm I'm pretty good at at drawing connections and and this idea of taking elements you wouldn't think would fit together and making them work. And that goes back to my my first novel where you know I was in college. I was getting to the point where I was going to have to go out in the world and start paying for my own food, and so it was time to write. I'd I'd been writing since I was five, and it was time for me to come up with a a, a novel I could actually sell. And Fool on the Hill is really... the the, the, I had ideas for like four or five different stories that none, none of them quite added up to a book on their own, so I decided to see if I could just put them all together in one book. So it's kind of a blending of in a way of four or five diverse stories or genres and in, and in, into one package and it, it could have been a disaster but i i turned out i had a knack for that sort of cross-pollinization and it's it's always worked for me so um... and it's true yes there are people who who really, really like to keep their literary fiction separate from their science fiction separate from their fantasy, separate from their you know their their lovecraftian horror but um... I don't know. I, I I would just feel like it was a it was a poorer fiction if you couldn't mix and match at least when it when it makes sense.
0: It seems that there's the thing. The other thing that I find hopeful about this book is, in those covert internet conspiracy landscapes, you know that the X Files is trying to address, which the show <laughs> sometimes inhabits. Um, there is this strange movement to. I don't know what the backlash is against, but there's there's this rising fascism and racism and anti-Semitism in occult communities. And so this is the kind of thing that feels like something of an antidote to that, where you're telling the kind of stories that really ignite these, these type of folks' imaginations. They want uh, stories about meaning, but stories about magic and stories about, uh, you know, wonder. But mm-hmm. then to ground it in, in, in uh, American reality... I think it's fabulous.
1: Well, I mean, the the thing about conspiracy theories, I think where that can appeal to uh, fascism or or racism, or part of it is you you can certainly use conspiracy theories as a one size fit all explanation of the world. So it's, yes, you can can combine disparate elements with it, but you can also use it to sort of create a a narrative that explains everything from one point of view. And so it's yeah. And it, if it, 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 obviously, if you're feeling personally threatened by demographic developments or by political developments, then you can use those. You can use those same tools of fantasy to to construct uh, an all-encompassing narrative about why all of these people are united against you and have to be destroyed or or got done done away with. So sure, it 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 works both ways, but. Um, and I, you know, I, with with Lovecraft, there I wasn't constantly necessarily trying to fight that point of view. It was just more. A, a, I had a different story to tell, and, a, and hopefully a more open story to tell. So,
0: and right, and that's one of the nice things about the book too is that it takes some of these these writers that definitely had uh, antiquated views or even outright racist <laughs> views, and then oh un- yeah,
1: Lovecraft. Love, I mean, that was the point of the title, is that I mean, Lovecraft i i think he's a fabulous writer he was incredibly talented but part of what drove him was this this deep-seated white supremacy and and dread of people who were different from him and so calling it lovecraft is kind of this double entendre combining sort of cosmic supernatural horror with the horror of white racism and and um... Yeah, with Lovecraft, i, I got to say, I, I, I'm still trying to figure him out. And that's the other thing that drives me, is even people who I really revile, I, I you know, their views, I still kind of like to know where they're coming from. And it's it's not hard to understand how he became a white supremacist to begin with, because he was born at a time when race relations in the United States were, were at the nadir, basically. Um, but I'm, I'm still trying to work out, Exactly why he stayed a white supremacist because he wasn't a stupid man. He wasn't incapable of you know rejecting convention when it suited him. But for some reason, this this really rabid dislike of anyone who was different from him just just consumed him. And I I, I you know I've read his some of his letters. I've I've read the stories, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it was in his life. It's like there's a, there, I feel like there's a missing puzzle piece in the stuff I've looked at as to why he continued to cling to it but i don't know um
0: uh do you do you have a favorite episode in the book that oh, you enjoyed wow. writing or that from the from a
1: it's probably it's probably would be a toss-up between um uh hippolyta disturbs the universe this is yeah. traveling to yeah she's she's a sort of a She's somebody who wanted to be basically Clyde Tombaugh when she grew up, Clyde Tombaugh, the guy who discovered Pluto. And so she wanted to be an astronomer, but she's a, she's a black woman growing up in the Depression, so that's not really a career option for her. And so she, she, her adventure is that she finds out about what she thinks is a private astronomical observatory out in the middle of Wisconsin woods and decides to go check it out. And it turns out it, it lets you do more than just observe other planets. Um... And the other choice would, would probably be, be Ruby, um, the, the Jekyll and Hyde Park chapter, which is Ruby is Letitia's sister who goes out with the wrong guy on New Year's Eve and, and wakes up the next morning transformed into a white woman. So it's, it's a, sort of a Jekyll and Hyde story, but it's also a very different, very different set of circumstances. Um, both of those chapters those were great characters and the, and the chapters were really challenging to write and particularly Ruby's chapter was uh was uh, an interesting part of the function of that was because I had all these viewpoint characters who were African American, I needed a way to let the reader see what the, the white villains in the story were up to when they thought no one was watching. And so basically creating the situation where Ruby is magically able to pass as white was was one way to do that, but it was just also interesting taking taking this character who uh, you know everybody takes advantage of and in giving her this weird sort of power to experience life as a white woman and then the question becomes what what are you willing to do to to keep being able to do that so um that was a that was a great that was a great chapter to be able to write
0: which is the section when they uh, were retrieving the fabulous book from the museum but then in my head they all kind of are woven together so densely it's it's hard to separate the strands cuz they there there's a lot of interplay
1: so that was your favorite was Abdullah's book no i
0: think my favorite was definitely the Hippolyta. that That's one That's interesting yeah
1: she seems to be a favorite of a lot of people which is great because that was it was funny that was the one this was the first novel where I was up against a hard word limit as to how long it could be. And so I was concerned that uh, I wasn't going to be able to fit in everything I wanted. And, and with Hippolytus chapter, although I think it's indispensable in terms of the larger narrative, it's it's really, if you had to cut one chapter and, and try to keep the rest of the book whole, that was probably the one that had to go. And. So I was I I was writing it in this dread of some future of my my editor saying you know we we need to cut this so I, I it sort of inspired me to make it as as good as I could so that you wouldn't you wouldn't dare want to make that argument and uh and it turns out yeah that that seems to be the favorite of quite a lot of people
0: and as far as plausibility goes that really pushes the limits too.
1: It's yeah. It's probably the most it's probably the most science fictional and and weirdest story in the book. But I, I loved it. Yeah.
0: This show really appreciates synchronicity, and so um, in Bad Monkeys, which I think people have said is your Philip K. Dick book, um, closest
1: to probably yeah. Um, the
0: the the protagonist is contacted in in a Philip K. Dick sort of way, like through crossword puzzles and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so uh, in regards to synchronicity and Philip K Dick, mm-hmm. I'm curious what you made of another offer, author coming up with his own version of a HP Lovecraft story at the same time as yours.
1: Oh yeah, this is Victor Laval um and it's called The Ballad of Black Tom and it's it's if if you re- if you if your listeners haven't read it it's definitely worth checking out. And yes, it was a very interesting coincidence. His story is uh victor victor took basically one of one of lovecraft's um most most racist short stories it's called the 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 horror at red hook and basically retells it from the point of view of a, a black character who would have just been a nameless figure in a mob in the in the original lovecraft story and um so, yeah, I, I started hearing rumblings about this at, in the run-up to Lovecraft Country's publication, and, and by an amazing coincidence, both books were published on the same day, February 16th. So, um, yeah, that was a weird coincidence, and there were others, too. I, Barnes Noble's got me and Victor together for an online chat, and it turns out that, you know, we're both from New York, we both went to Cornell, and, and we both had the same teachers there, too, so it, 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 it really was this weird parallel, um and uh, yeah we both shared a significant teacher a fellow named James Turner who was was uh, an African studies professor who was a big influence on both me and Victor. He was just one of those guys you you remember your whole life. Um, and yeah uh, I don't know. I think it, it it may just be a sign that the sort of the time has come round for a new kind of storytelling where I mean Lovecraft what he did right, I think, is going to persist. Uh, that just that sense of dread and horror and and cosmic stuff. So, people want to keep a lot of what's good in Lovecraft, and that that means, I think, that the the genre, the the Sulu mythos, is going to be rehabilitated or or re, repurposed by people who don't necessarily share all of Lovecraft's views, but who like what what he did did well. So, uh, and you know. So I think that that it just yeah, but it is it is a very strange coincidence.
0: I think there is you know some of Philip K. Dick's stuff is slightly problematic too. I wonder if if they'll go, if those days will be coming too, where we'll have to come to terms with some of his. Uh, I don't
1: know. I, I I think that I mean the thing the the thing that makes Lovecraft special, I guess, in, not in a good way. It's just that. You really can't separate his his views on race from the fiction. It's just right in your face, and I I don't know that like the the horror of Lovecraft is the horror of the other. And there are
2: uh,
1: with with Dick, I don't necessarily feel that you know his his sexism necessarily is is as intrinsic to what works about his fiction. I think you can do sort of a a Dickian worldview without, you know, really necessarily running afoul of what doesn't work. I don't know. I mean, maybe you you have a different take on that, but it just doesn't feel as essential to what makes Dick Dick as, as Lovecraft's racism seems to be to what makes Lovecraft, Lovecraft. If that makes sense. Yeah. At least I've never felt so. I mean, I think any... Any author from you know the the mid to early twentieth century is going to have some pretty sketchy views on on race and gender and, and not all of them, but a lot of the more popular writers. but it's just easier to separate some from their views than others and and Lovecraft, it's really difficult to do. You, you've at least got to say something before you you know go off with Thulu and do what you want to do with him. And Dick, I don't know. I, I just never got the sense that that's true, but maybe again, maybe you have a different take.
0: No, I think it sounds pretty interesting. I'm curious if you've, uh, we're running near the end of this. I'm wondering if you've been approached now to perhaps turn this into a film or a TV show. And then where have you ended up? What are you working on now?
1: Um, there's been some interest, and I hope there'll be some news soon. Um, and as for what I'm working now, I'm still trying to decide. i This is the first novel where I've really wanted to do sequels, because I feel like I've, I've got more I could do with these characters um, but, but I, I, part of me is thinking what I, what I should probably do first because I, rather than commit to, you know, uh, if I, if I did more with Lovecraft Country, I think I'd want to do at least two or three more books, not just one more. And so before trying to get my publisher to sign off on that, I think I may want to do a, a more bad monkey sized project, something that I can write fairly quickly that, that will be a little different, but I, I haven't decided what that will be yet.
0: Yeah. Well, so now that I think about it, the mirage was actually,
1: yeah, similar. Yeah, mirage was also a, a an idea initially for a television pitch, but but didn't didn't go anywhere either because it's, yes, it's a 9/11 story with an all Arab Muslim cast. Right. That, that really was, that's really <laughs> a hard sell, especially when the Iraq War is still going on. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you're talking about the other, and then you want to make them. The focus uh, somehow. So we're in. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a great premise.
1: Well, the mirage. It was just. Yeah, I wanted. I, I didn't want to write about. I, I wanted to write about 9/11, but I wanted to write about the people who were caught in the middle. So the 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 protagonists are not, they're not terrorists. They're like the ordinary Iraqis caught between really angry Americans with guns and bombs and really angry Islamist with guns and bombs and this you know i wanted to write about the ordinary folks stuck on the ground in the middle of this fight who didn't want any part of it so uh, i found a a science fictional way to do that um yeah
0: but so then is it if you're a writer without a project is that a scary thing or you just know i mean You've done this. No, before.
1: I, I'll, I'll, I'm just, I'm just, I've always been slow and deliberative, and I've had the good fortune to be able to take my time. And I, I think that was another problem that Philip K. Dick had was that he had to write, you know, more than one book a year to make ends meet. And that, that I've been fortunate enough to be able to take my time and just. I have ideas that aren't ready yet, and I just need to walk around and talk to myself and let them bake a little longer before I before I put them out there and before I start to work on them. So, but I'm getting to the point now where I'm I, I'm pretty soon something will drop into place and I'll be ready to go again.
0: So, is your process such that you need to write every day, or that you just need to kind of contemplate, and then when you've dug around in the dirt enough, then you can start building, and then you begin writing?
1: Yeah, I I. Spent a long, long time thinking and talking to myself. I go on long walks, five, ten miles, and just run stuff in my head. And then when I'm when I'm ready, when I when I know pretty much line by line what the you know the first chapter is going to be, that's when I actually start putting it down on paper. Um, so I'm I'm getting to that point, but I again I I I'm still I have a couple of different ideas that I'm trying to decide between. So,
0: well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great.
0: You bet. You've been listening to Matt Ruff on 42 Minutes, of production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out his website, to which we'll link, by mattruff.com For more information about The SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete IRE archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and omnes mundum facimus.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Douglas.
0: <laughs> you bet. Thanks so much. <clears throat>
2: Thank hey. you.